Good morning, everyone. This morning, we're continuing our summer sermon series on the Psalms that we've been going through the last few weeks. As we've said before, the Psalms, they're really a hymn book for the church. They're a collection of these poetic pieces. Many of them were written by King David, and they've been used throughout church history for both individual worship and for corporate worship. They can be taken as individual poems, but they're also strategically placed within the book of Psalms, categorized by various themes. They often tell the story of the lives of those living in ancient Israel, especially the life of King David. And we often use the Psalms in worship, even this morning, just now, we sang the the Psalm that we're going to study this morning. And so they really, the Psalms, they express the wealth of human emotion. They express fear and joy, despair and sadness, and everything in between. And so this morning we're going to look at Psalm 121, which we just sang together, so you can follow along in your bulletins, your pew Bibles, or just listen while I read from Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord, who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. May we come away from our time this morning more aware of our need for Jesus and his gospel and more aware of how that need fits into our lives. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. I started attending Covenant six years ago this fall. I was a junior in college at the time. And my friend and I, we would come together and we would always sit at the way back, one of the last couple rows. And we liked to, we, we just liked to sit back there. It was a little more comfortable. That way we could slip in and out of church really easily. And the only time I ever actually got close to the front of the church was during communion. And it was actually one of the things that I really liked about the church. The fact that in communion, I would spend this time walking all the way from the back, all the way to the front. I liked the music at the church. The, the songs were great, but it was hard to learn the new songs. And I always liked the preaching as well, but it was never really easy for me to listen to someone talk for 25 to 30 minutes. But communion was a little different. I loved that pilgrimage that I would make from the very back to the very front of the church. And the whole way as I walked up, I would always stare up at that cross at the top. And that long walk, even though it was probably only a minute, maybe two minutes at the most, as I slowly walked forward in the communion line, gave me so much time to just reflect on things, to stare up at that cross and to think about how big God is and how small I was, how needy I was, and how maybe, just maybe, God could meet those needs in this meal. And whenever I think of this psalm, Psalm 121, I think back to those moments. That was the psalm that I would reflect on as I walked forward. And every time I look up at a mountain, I often think of this psalm. And it's a psalm that reminds us to look up. 
Psalm 121 is the second of a group of 15 psalms, from Psalm 120 to 135. They're called the Songs of Ascent, or the Gradual Psalms. And there's kind of a translation issue as to whether or not to call them the Songs of Ascent or the Gradual Psalms. But just know that the reason why they're called this is because the most common tradition is that the people of Israel would sing these psalms as they approached Israel. So these psalms were sung successfully, successively as the people of God approached the city of Jerusalem. There were three major religious festivals every year, and for each one of them, the majority of the people would go on a pilgrimage. They would head to Jerusalem. And Jerusalem, as a city, is placed out on top of a hill. The Judean hill country is at a much higher elevation than the Dead Sea, than whether you're out at the sea or the north or the south, no, no matter where you're coming from, the pilgrimage to Jerusalem is a pilgrimage up unto the hills. And so, our psalm this morning tells the story of a pilgrim looking up at the city of Jerusalem and asking the question, where does my help come from? One of the best ways to understand this psalm, though, is to understand the psalm that comes before it and the one that comes after it. Psalm 120 is the first song of ascent, but it actually sounds way, way different than the rest of them. In Psalm 120, the psalmist looks around and despairs at the conditions around him. He's upset about the war and violence. He's upset that he can't find peace, and he says, Woe to me who journey, who journey in Mekesh. And then, so that's on one side of our psalm, and then on the other side, in Psalm 122, the psalm is titled, Let us go to the house of the Lord. And it's a very joyous psalm, a psalm of celebration, a psalm where the pilgrim finally enters the house of the Lord. And so our psalm this morning, 121, fits itself right in between those two, in between the despair of a pilgrim who wishes to be back in his home, and in between the joy of a pilgrim who's finally entered the house of the Lord. So there's reason to believe that the origin of this psalm is either just a normal Jewish pilgrim who's coming to, to, do, to pay his dues at the city of Jerusalem, or potentially when the Jews were returning from the Babylonian exile to their most significant city. And so regardless of where exactly we put this psalm, when we date it, the author of the psalm is a traveler, a pilgrim, a person without a home who is headed home, a traveler looking up to the city that meant so much to them and asking the question, where does my help come from? The city of Jerusalem was up on a hill, but the hills in Jerusalem and in the, in the nation of Israel weren't always a good place. Throughout a lot of the Old Testament, the hills are where people set up idols. The hills are where false idols were worshipped, where the Canaanites lived, and where there were thieves and marauders. So the hills do not necessarily always have a great, perfect context. And yet, for each of these negative possibilities, for the danger that the hills might hold, the city of Jerusalem shines so much brighter. And so when the psalmist asks, from where does my help come, as he lifts his eyes unto the hills, the future looks bright because the city of Jerusalem looks bright. And so as we look at the start of our psalm this morning, and as we read about the psalmist lifting up his eyes, 
we know that they were comforted, that they were comforted that their God was present there and that that God who was present with them was their help and their portion. Psalm 121 has often been called the traveler's psalm or the soldier's psalm. And as we start to go through it, you can see why this is the case. Looking at verse 3, it says, He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. So the same Hebrew word for keep is used six times in this psalm. In just verses 3 through 8, it uses some form of this word keep six times. And this repetition should give us some pause. What does it mean that the Lord keeps us, that the Lord is our keeper, that the Lord will keep us from all evil and he will keep our life? What does that mean? Six times in an eight-verse psalm it's used, so we have to think about what this could possibly mean for us. First, a few things that it doesn't mean. It doesn't, God doesn't keep us like a childhood toy that he's going to get rid of when it isn't useful for him anymore. Nor are we to consider ourselves as some perishable food item that might not keep until Monday. The idea with being kept here is that God guards us, that he cares for us, that he watches over every single step that we take, that every time we leave home and return, he's watching and he cares. He's a vigilant watchman. And part of the implication here is also that we need to be watched. That in the same way that the journey from the valley to Jerusalem was a dangerous one, that our lives have dangerous moments, that at any point the fragility of our human life could be taken from us, and that as the author of the book of James reminds us, we are as a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So six times this word keep is used, each with a different nuance, each in an effort to expand our view of God's protection, to make it bigger and bigger. First, we're told that God will not slumber or sleep, that there is no time that God is not on watch. Next, we're told that he'll provide a shade from the sun and protection from the moon. And here the psalmist expands upon God's protection from the forces of nature. There was a belief perpetuated in ancient Israel that exposure to the moon would make you mentally insane. The best example of this would be that our English word lunatic comes from the Latin luna, meaning moon. So the psalmist is reminding his audience that whether the day or the night, we're protected from all harm. And the psalmist goes on to tell us that the Lord will keep us from all evil and that he will keep our life. So the majority of this psalm we see is an encouragement to its readers or its singers, as the case may be. And if you notice, verses 3 through 8 are all written with second-person pronouns. He will not let your foot be moved. The Lord is your keeper, etc., etc. However, if you notice, the first two verses are written in the first person. I lift up my eyes to the hills. My help comes from the Lord. And so what do we make of this? The psalmist seems to offer his own personal experience, his own actions, and then provides a theological framework an understanding of who God is, of God's guardianship, care, and protection, and says this is what it should lead to. So what we see the psalmist modeling for us 
is that when he looks for his help, he looks up, not around. Going back to the context of the previous psalm, we see that in Psalm 120, the psalmist looks around. And looking around at the world and looking inward at himself, he's caused, he has cause to despair. And yet in Psalm 121, his eyes lift, lift and rise up to the hills. And in this instance, he has reason to hope. And so true help, we see, is found when one looks up to the Lord and not around to the world. Believing in God's providence is really as difficult as it is human. Believing in God's providence is as difficult as it is human. Are you convinced in your mind that God is the perfect protector? Are you convinced that your goings out and your comings in are protected by the Lord? Or that you will be kept from all evil? Neither am I. The idea that someone or something has predetermined our steps, that the universe or some greater power is in control and that it will all work out, is pervasive in our culture. When we start to lose control, when we go through challenging times, it's normal to believe that someone or something has control. As the saying goes, there are no atheists in foxholes. My junior year of high school, when I was 16, I was running on a cross-country team, and our team was finally starting to come into a pretty solid form. We had seven guys who were running really well, and we thought, you know, this is the year that we take that step and do well as a team. And one day after practice, we decided to play a simple game of Frisbee. And as I was running down the field, I went and reached up to grab a Frisbee, and I came down right on my friend Russell's foot, and my ankle just twisted like it shouldn't normally twist. And just like that, I had an ankle sprain so severe that I couldn't run for three months. Season was over. I tell you that story not to trivialize more serious things that happen in our lives, but I tell you that story because the psalmist says, he will not let your foot be moved. Or as another translation would render it, he will not let your foot slip. And it sure seems like God let my foot slip. And so what do we make of this? What do we make of these seemingly grandiose promises that the psalmist is making about God that often don't line up with our experience in life? There's evil that we've experienced in our lives. There's sickness and death and famine. There's poverty and drought and brokenness in this world. And the psalmist seems to tell us, seems to tell the readers that we'll be protected from it, But often that isn't our experience, and if it isn't our experience, it certainly isn't the experience of our neighbors around us. And so does this psalm line up with your personal experience? Does the sentiment of this psalm ring true to you? Every psalm reflects a different emotion or experience, and sometimes we can relate really well to it, and sometimes we struggle to. As we've looked at the Psalms over the past few weeks, maybe God has spoken clearly to you through one of them. And maybe others just didn't seem that relevant to where you're at right now. And Psalm 121 is no different. For many of us, the God described in this Psalm, one who is our help, one who won't let our foot slip, and one who watches our every move, sounds really, really nice, but feels too good to be true. 
And so we hold this psalm in one hand and these experiences in another hand. And as we try to harmonize the two, it's okay to just say sometimes I don't believe this. In fact, one of my favorite stories in all of scripture comes in the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. It's a man whose son is really, really sick. And the father, crying out to Jesus to heal his son, says, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. We are all at varying stages of belief and unbelief in the God who says who he is in this passage. And maybe right now those words of verses 3 through 8 are words that you can't currently say, I believe. But maybe you're willing to say, Lord, help my unbelief. Providence is the term that Christians have historically used to describe what's in verses 3 through 8. God's protection and preservation of creation, of this world and everything in it, including us. And it's an attribute of God that is meant to be a great comfort and consolation. It's why this psalm is called the Traveler's Psalm or the Soldier's Psalm. It is a great comfort and consolation to read about a God who makes these promises. But maybe your experience is that you've been neglected rather than protected. Not cared for and kept by those who are supposed to care for you and keep you from harm. There are ways in which all of us were not loved and cared for by our families, our friends, our confidants, our employers, and even strangers. And I don't know the ways in which you weren't kept by others, the ways in which you weren't cared for, But if the Psalms teach us anything, it's that there's space for you in this Psalm to be mad and angry at God, to be upset at how things have gone, to read these verses and say, this is not my experience. This God who I'm reading about doesn't sound like the God that has cared for me. Our comfort this morning clearly isn't that we won't go through difficult times. It clearly isn't that we won't go through trials and troubles and tribulations because we've all experienced those things at varying degrees. But if that's not what this text means, then what does it mean? I think what it means is that God has seen it all. That he hasn't fallen asleep and missed all your suffering, in all the suffering in your life. That he hasn't turned a blind eye and while you were dealing with something, while your loved one, while your family, whatever the case, he wasn't just watching in the other direction. That he's kept you through it, that he's guarded you and kept you even in the worst of it. And that he continues to watch and care for you even in the darkest of days. And as we travel as pilgrims and sojourners through this treacherous life, we'll continue to wrestle forever until the other side of eternity with how God's providence and care can possibly interact with the brokenness of this world and how the promises of this text can possibly be true. But another profound truth that we see this morning in this text is simply that we're worthy of being cared for. One of the key implications of this psalm is that it's a rebuttal to the lie that we often tell ourselves. The lie that we aren't worthy of being cared for. That we aren't worthy of being kept and held by the one who made us. 
that we've done things that cause us to deserve the bad things that happen in our life. Not one of us believes the words of this psalm wholly and completely, but we need to be reminded of their truth. And God's word to us this morning is that we are worthy of being cared for, that we're worthy of having the God of the universe watch over our every step, What freedom we would have if we walk through life truly believing that our every step and our every breath are guarded by the God who made this entire world and who holds it all together. You're worthy of having someone care for you. And when I say you, I don't just mean you collectively, the hundred some of you that are sitting here this morning. I mean you and you and you and you. You are worthy of God being your keeper. And that's not because of anything that you have done. That's because of what he has done. It's not because of your faithfulness, but because of his. And it's not because of how much you love God, but it's because of how much he loves you. That's why you're worthy of him being your keeper. One of the odd things about this psalm is that there aren't any commands. There aren't any imperatives guiding us to do one thing over and against another to read our Bibles X number of times, or to love our friends and families in a certain way, or any other good tidbit of advice. So instead, our call this morning is to try to emulate the psalmist in his actions and to allow the understanding of who God is as our protector, our creator, and our sustainer to sink deeper and deeper into our minds. When we look around at the world we often have one of two impulses. First, our impulse is often to view ourselves as the savior of this broken world. We look at the problems in our relationships, our jobs, our cities, our world, and we think that we can fix things. If everyone just thought a bit more like us, the world would be a better place. But as we see in Psalm 120, the more we look around and the more we look inward, the more we have cause for despair. And so that's often our second impulse, to despair. What hope is there for a broken city? What hope is there for marriage on the ropes? What hope is there for a prodigal child, a messed up school system, a dying parent, or a ruined career? What hope is there and what help is there? I want to propose that we ask God to help us emulate the psalmist this morning. That rather than looking around for our help, rather than looking around and ultimately despairing at the condition of our broken lives and this broken world, that we would look up. That we would lift our eyes unto the hills and beyond them unto the heavens and pray. And pray to our God who loves us deeply, who is our help and who cares for us. Who keeps us. But as we look up, let us also be reminded that Jesus came down. That Jesus, our Heavenly Father's beloved Son, our older brother, came down so that we wouldn't have to live this pilgrim life alone and so that we wouldn't have to leave this world alone. But He came so that we could engage in that brokenness and so that He could engage in it with us. Throughout the New Testament, the authors of several books do a surprising thing. They take these words of the psalmist and they put them in Jesus' mouth. 
Jesus speaks the psalmist's words as if they are his own. One of the most notable instances is on the cross. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 and says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? One commentator elaborates on this and he says, The apostles enable us to see the heart of that better pilgrim, Jesus, whose perfect faithfulness is the necessary substitute for our uneven faithfulness, covering ours and bringing us safely home. We get to see his griefs and pain, his faith and aspiration, his hopes and his triumphs. So as we journey through the life that God has placed before us, as we look up to him for help, not around, but as we engage with Jesus in this broken world, trying to speak truth about who God is and how he cares for us and loves us, and not just us, but this whole broken world around us, may we be convinced day by day that he is a good, good father who even on our darkest day, in our greatest trial and tribulation, tribulation, is watching over us. He doesn't cover his eyes and not want to see what we're going through. He is there with us in it. And so I'll close with the words written in Jude 24 to 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before his glorious presence with great joy, to the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages now and forevermore. Let me pray for us. Father, you are our keeper. You care for us more than we care for ourselves. And we're thankful that you do that in spite of our sin and our brokenness and that you love us more than we could ever think or imagine. And so, Father, I pray this morning that you would impress that deeper on our hearts, how good and holy and loving you are and how everything we need is found in you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.